Welcome to the Hudson Institute. I'm Brian Clark, a senior fellow at the Institute and director of the Hudson Center for Defense Concepts and Technology. Uh, I'm here today with Dr. Dan Pat, who's also a senior fellow here at Hudson Institute. Uh, and we are really fortunate today to have with us uh, four great guests uh, to talk about uh, the efforts that Australia is making on AUKUS Pillar 2, uh, which is uh, focused on emerging technologies, and a lot of what we're going to talk about is unmanned. So with us today, uh, Professor Emily Hilder, who's the interim head of the Advanced Strategic Capabilities Accelerator in Australia's uh, Department of Defense, uh, Brigadier James Davis, who's the Director General for Future Land Warfare in the Australian Army, Air Commodore Ross Bender, who's the Director General of Air Cap Combat Capability in the Royal Australian Air Force, and Captain uh, Adam Alicia, who's the Director General for Warfare Innovation Navy in the Royal Australian Navy. So, uh, Emily, gentlemen, thank you very much for being here today, uh, and we really appreciate you taking the time and, and uh, the, the schedule coordination that was necessary for us to all arrive at this virtual room at the same time. Um, and uh, you know, to kind of lead it off, you know, AUKUS has obviously received a lot of attention there and here in the U.S., uh, but most of the attention has been focused on Pillar 1, which is the submarines, the nuclear submarines that will eventually be provided to Australia uh, through a variety of means. Um, less attention has been paid to AUKUS Pillar 2, uh, which is emerging technologies, and uh, in particular the unmanned portion of it, which is what I, we want to talk a little bit about today. Um, Dan and I did a report uh, in, in concert with you all last year looking at how to improve the ability of Australia's uh, defense force to field unmanned systems uh, at scale, scale and, and pace. Um, and I think those recommendations out of that report uh, seem to have made a difference over there. Um, but we want to talk a little bit today about, you know, sort of where are the opportunities with unmanned? Where does Australia see itself going in the in the defense force in terms of unmanned um, and what the opportunities and challenges will be to reaching that? Um, so to start with, what do you all see as the, the opportunities in uncrewed systems you know, that make their introduction a really high priority for the ADF? Um, and uh, we'll start with you, James, because uh, one of your hats is um, head of joint autonomy for the Australian Defence Force. So in a lot of ways, you kind of own this whole space. So over to you, James. Thanks, Brian. Um, for those of you who, who might not be aware, um, Australia's continental landmass is about the same as the lower 48. Um, the difference is there's about only 26 million, well, now 27 million uh, people. And I think at last count, California alone was about 36. Um, in addition to that, uh, we have a number of economic and security interests in the area to our north, which is similarly vast um, in both geography and, and demographics. Um, when we look at the, some of those security uh, challenges, uh, you're drawn to the conclusions that the only way to, to try, one of the only ways to try to bridge the gap in um, in the vast geography and the small population is through an increased uh, use of uh, autonomous systems. So, so probably those big drivers for all, like they are for everyone, for, for national security thinking in geography and demographics is, is true for us, and that's what leads us to autonomy. Thanks, James. So, so Ross, as the Air Force you know, lead, obviously there's a there's a lot of activity happening in the uh, unmanned space for for air forces, um, and um, Australia is a long way from everywhere else uh, that that might you know contribute to air air power being something that demands unmanned systems even more so than other domains. So, where do you see as the opportunities here? Uh, thanks, Brian. And very similar to the opening comments from James, there, you know, our geography is a critical player. You know, maritime nation. You know, 
air has had that ability to reach. But when you're trying to cover right across from the Indian Ocean across to the Pacific Ocean, you, know, you can only have a, a certain number of aircraft, can only go a certain distance in a certain time. And so therefore, the ability to have uncrewed systems with degrees of autonomy, they allow you to have that reach and persistence in that part of the region is really where I see the opportunities coming forward. Um, our, our crude platforms uh, from an air perspective are becoming more and more expensive and complex. And so therefore, the ability to have large numbers of those is becoming harder and harder. So complementing those with uncrewed systems gives us that ability to work with our crude platforms and then work across that landmass. But importantly, the maritime uh, borders around us to enable us to understand what's going on there and the ability to provide response options for government. So that's really, I see from an air perspective, it's adding another dimension to what always has been, I guess, one of the key features of, of air power is that reach, but it's becoming harder and harder and uncrewed systems enable us to continue to cover that gap. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, so Adam, the uh, you know, Navy's done a lot in terms of unmanned system development. You just had Autonomous Warrior here late last year. Um, what's the you know, what are the opportunities and and the challenges here that are facing the Navy in terms of getting uh, unmanned systems into the force? And what's the what's the imperative there? Uh, thanks, Brian. And uh, look, echoing the comments from the first two responses, we're obviously an island nation, and uh, so surrounded by ocean and uh, the undersea warfare elements of that uh, uh, ocean gap between us and uh, and potential adversaries um, affords an opportunity to actually. Um, get somewhere uh, relatively unscathed to, to be able to, to, to deliver lethal effects. So uh, Commodore Bender was talking about persistence and uh, the work that Navy is doing at the moment is very much about the uncrewed underwater systems, which uh, can provide persistent ISR and strike options um, at range. And I think importantly at mass, uh, we talked about the small population and the large area, our traditional systems, particularly in Navy, uh, particularly expensive and, and expensive on um, the ability to provide the human workforce to, to crew those assets and traditional ships and submarines. We, we continue to struggle to recruit and retain sufficient workforce to, to grow um, that, those types of capabilities. And with uncrewed systems, there is a good opportunity to be able to develop them in such a way that uh, we've got uh, you know, many assets to single operator and to be able to actually achieve that affordable mass. And and I think the last thing I'd say on this is it's not actually about replacing our defence force with uncrewed systems. It's really about enhancing the force in being with asymmetric effects to make our existing capabilities more effective. So a mantra of, of enhance, not replace. Right, right. Well, and, and we'll talk a little bit about more about that as we go into some discussion about some of the use cases. So, so Emily, um, yeah, ASCA is his new office that was created as part of the Defense Strategic Review uh, last year uh, to move along these technologies. So, what's the role of ASCA in fielding these emerging technologies like unmanned systems? Um, and kind of what do you see as the opportunity space, especially with the commercial providers? That I think is a lot of what you're supposed to be. You know, there's an opportunity to bring those into the fold. Yeah, look, um, that's a great question, Brian, and it leads really nicely from uh, what um, my colleagues have just spoken about there. So they've spoken very much through the capability lens, and that aligns very well with ASCA, whose purpose is to develop and deliver asymmetric um, technologies that can improve our defence capability. Now, we're trying to do that in an accelerated fashion 
so that we can get um, the capabilities we need faster, which is where these, these uncrewed systems really come in. There's a great opportunity for rapid development, which um, as, um, as Adam put so nicely there, helps us to enhance the force in being and um, make our, um, the platforms we have now more effective. But there's also an opportunity for us to get after truly asymmetric opportunities more quickly as well. So ASCA is here to help uh, innovate and accelerate that development and that delivery of, um, of new capability to our defence force. I think the other thing that's really important, and you touched on it there in referring to industry, is that we have um, an industry base in Australia that's largely small and medium businesses and, and more on the small side. Um, there's an opportunity for us here to, to harness that industrial capability and to look at ways that we can think about what sovereign capability means for Australia, what our sovereign industrial base looks like, what would happen if our supply chains were cut and we needed to work with what we've got now and also how we can rapidly scale. So in the Australian context, rapidly scaling is not about necessarily taking a small business and growing it into a large business, but it could be about how we can work with multiple small players dispersed across the country to be able to deliver that capability. And these um, smaller uncrewed systems offer um, incredible opportunities in that space. So it's really something that's about what's fit for purpose for Australia that um, allows us to get to that affordable mass, but also allows us to uh, deliver it with the industrial base that we have. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And uh, when I was there in November, we definitely met with a lot of companies that are local that that seem to be able to deliver viable capabilities. And hopefully, there's opportunities for them to turn around and sell those here. Um, Dan, over to you. Yeah, I want to pull on the thread about smaller systems. So first of all, my role here is to play the straight man of the naive American perspective. That, and and let me characterize the naive American perspective on the Pacific. That you know, the U.S. perspective tends to think first and foremost about power projection. And, and largely with, with the center of power being the continental US, Hawaii, and so on. And therefore that implies that operations in the Pacific for the US are over enormous distances. And it, look, basic physics and engineering says that if you're gonna transit enormous distances, you need large systems, right? That can, that can have the energy uh, uh, to deal with those kinds of transits and extended operations. And really that that pulls you up into uh, often a lot of complexity. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong over long transits, right? Which is one of the reasons that crude systems, uh, uh, you know, are, have, are the time proven solution. And my question for you is, you know, when we think about how Australian Defence Forces think about operations to, you know, how well, how different is it from this U.S. model of power projection? To how do uh, you know roles of territorial defense and coastal defense play against those? And is there an opportunity for uncoupled systems in uh, alternative roles, whether whether they're you know non-mobile uh, distributed surveillance systems or or whether uh, uh, you know they're smaller uncoupled systems where you can really take advantage of uh, the dynamism and cost and lower cost of these smaller systems. I'm happy to jump in here because this is a this is a topic of interest to me that that I think that uncrewed systems work particularly well in the Australian context because our um, geopolitical situation, you know, I spoke about geography and demographics before and the other parties, you know, strategy and politics uh, lend itself to more defensive uh, missions 
when you look at uh, our uh, place in the world or in a potential conflict, most of our missions will be defensive or security orientated. And so um, things like, uh, you know, uh, wide area surveillance, um, uh, sense and respond type missions, I, I think are well suited to the uncrewed crewed systems um, and give you the capacity to cover more uh, terrain. Um, now, at a point in time, you might put crude systems in there as well, but there's a whole range of baseline wide area surveillance you can do um, with the uncrewed systems. In terms of the power, that doesn't mean we're not going to need to project power. We're still going to need to do that, just even within Australia, right, to get things where they where they need to go. So I, there is a there is an aspect of uh, of small in terms of platforms, but we are also looking at larger uncrewed systems as a means of getting uh, those smaller capabilities to where they need, or uh, also novel uh, ways. You know, you might probably familiar with the Oculus Blue Bottle um, to to get sensors and have them persisting in places where, where we need them uh, to be. Uh, I'll just pause there. I'm sure others have views. Yeah, yeah Ross, you talked a little bit about, you know, you, you talked about some, you know, offensive use cases essentially where we might, um, you know, have manned and unmanned teams, you know, operating far from, relatively far from Australia. So that, that seems to demand something, you know, larger and more more capable than maybe the smaller, you know, high endurance or slow uh, unmanned systems. Yeah, I think um, that's probably alluded to earlier on. It, it is a systems to systems approach. So it is a bringing together uncrewed systems in the all domains. And then I write from those small, uh, no cheap, uh, affordable up to you would call the exquisite. And it's really about bringing those all together and enabling all of those systems to work together, to complement each other, to share, and operate as a as a team with three systems. And I think from an Australian context, you know, that geography bit that was raised earlier on, particularly in the northern part of Australia, you know, the population density is very, very, very low. And so if you want to uh, have that persistence in the northern part of the region, and then that I'm alluded to, to enable that to occur with as a few people as possible, that's really where I think those uncrewed systems come into play, providing that ability to uh, have presence and persistence across uh, particularly our northern regions and in the maritime domain. The ability to work together with larger systems that are uncrewed, and for example, from the Air Force, um, now we have the uh, the Triton aircraft arriving later this year, and so that is a, a large seven three seven sized uncrewed system. People don't normally sort of think of that, but that is an example of a, a very large, extensive uncrewed system, and that does provide us you no know, extreme, extreme long range and persistence. But that has to work with all the range down to the blue bottle that was alluded to earlier on. So we need to work that how we are designing that ecosystem and that systems of systems. So all of those can come together and then when required, have those exquisite crude platforms again in all domains to come together to provide that security for the nation. It, it, it kind of seems like you're, what we're also saying is that it's not, you know, it's not that all the large systems are used for power projection and the small systems are used for defensive missions because clearly those small systems provide targeting ISR, you know, that enables the power projection by, you know, some other system, but it all could be, you know, done with small systems. It could all be done with larger systems. So you definitely end up having to 
formulate a use case and a combination of systems that are unique to an operational problem. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the work, I guess, from an Australian perspective, uh, being the smaller nation, that you know, that ability for us to all work closer together and, uh, and the four people you have here from Australia, you know, we probably see each other every week and that ability to collaborate is one of the advantages we have as a smaller nation. Yeah, Adam, uh, you mentioned uh, undersea and, you know, in the context of power projection, are you guys looking at, you know, undersea options to be able to, you know, be able to uh, provide options to uh, leaders that might want to do power projection operations, you know, within the, in the ad, in the absence of a submarine to do it uh, until the, the AUKUS submarines rise? Is that something you guys are looking at? Look, look absolutely, Brian. Look, we, we've only got so many submarines available at any one time. So being able to, getting back to the affordable, affordable mass is having, more platforms permanently deployed forward into an area of operations, ready to respond should they need to. Um, help helps us uh, uh, get over those long distance issues by having enough of them that we can be rotating them in and out of theatre and and um, you know re replenishing them, refurbishing when they get back, and then sending them back out on more, more missions. So there I said it might be the um, the poor man's version of, of the nuclear deterrent, but we don't have nuclear weapons. It's it's probably the smaller type of weapons that we can put onto these um, these systems. Um, the teaming piece for me is, is is important because it is about probably carrying payload sensors and effectors, those long distances, and they're probably small. Quite often, you alluded to before about um, ISO UAVs and whatnot. Absolutely, and I think trying to work out. Um, you know, from a traditional power projection or warfighting um, perspective, how do we fight with these systems? And so we're doing a lot of thinking about what concepts make sense and, and how do we achieve asymmetric effects? Because it's not necessarily the way you would with a normal submarine. Um, in fact, probably quite different. Uh, yes, they're underwater and they look like a submarine, but there's no people on them. I can probably take some more risk because of that. I can probably put them into some really dangerous missions where they're actually used in an expendable fashion, where I don't expect them to come back. Um, and indeed, um, it, it helps us get into that war of attrition where we, we can take losses without the loss of human life. And if they're relatively cheap, it, uh, it remains affordable to keep replacing them and keep driving them through. And I think as we go through our exercises like Autonomous Warrior, November Rain, and, uh, and our combined AUKUS exercises, I think we'll start to um, see the opportunities as we put these uh, prototype um, into the hands of our operators. They themselves will come up with some great ideas. And indeed, we're seeing that with industry. As we explain uh, the problem we're trying to achieve or the problem we're trying to solve and the effects we're trying to achieve, we're getting some great ideas from industry. And I think they are challenging the way we think because they don't come with 30 years worth of uh, military doctrine uh, in their head that they're coming with uh, really novel and innovative ways of solving problems, which I think keeps us fresh and, and challenges our ability to keep up with them. If I can chime in here, I mean, I, th I think this is really fascinating. Right? We're, we're starting at the big picture. We have these challenges of area and demographics that drive us uh, to uncrewed systems. But even then, it's it's not about a new drone per se and what that drone can do it's implied there's new operational concepts here right there's there's a new way of conducting asw but that implies also and and the, the, this has been brought up on our call uh it's therefore about uh fielding 
a system of systems, which means I have to integrate across these elements, very often across domains, possibly between different branches uh, of, of, of the military. And in the US, this has proven incredibly challenging. There's been uh, uh, some of the reasons why are, well, you have different offices responsible for, for developing individual systems and nobody's responsible for the integration. It's hard to coordinate. How do you think about approaching these fundamental challenges of integration for for system of systems? And and Emily, maybe I'll I'll start with you uh, over over on the capability side. Uh, I'm I'm really interested to know how you're thinking about this. Yeah, look. So um, Ross started before with that point that we're a very well connected system, and it is a benefit of the scale of Australia, and that we have um, that we're all largely in the almost in the same building here and um, can see each other regularly and well-connected. This is this is a real strength um, in the Australian system, not just the connectivity within um, our, between our services, but also with the wider defence organisation. Um, ASK has been set up deliberately to do this in that we have, I have a, a, um, a governance that isn't just sitting with the science and technology organisation, but also our acquisition organisation our strategy and policy, and um, my uh, primary governance board is is chaired by the vice chief of defence force. So we we have that connectivity, which I think is incredibly important, and we've set it up that way from the start. And said to many people, if if uh, the ADF and others don't feel that they own ASCA, then we failed because it needs to be something that allows us to deliver capability more quickly, but in a way that's relevant. So I think that um, that integration piece. Is, is really important and it comes from working together. Um, exercises here like Autonomous Warrior it used to look very white, a lot of our Navy there. And now um, at the last Autonomous Warrior, um, I think at some points, Adam, you were outnumbered, which is, which is, a, which is a fabulous outcome and, and shows that we're, we're heading in the right direction in, ter in terms of that not just being a, a maritime exercise and recognising that we have a, a multi-domain um, challenge here. The other thing too that I think has been really important, and we're talking about um, con operational concepts there before, is that we, in experimenting with our concepts and then going out and doing that, we then have an opportunity to experiment with what the technology needs to be. So we experiment with the concepts, which allows us to think about what our technology be is, which then guides where we experiment with the concepts again. And we only do that by going out and doing that together. Um, but I would I would challenge the word integration. I think one of the things that's been um, really important uh, in the Australian context is the focus on interfacing more so than complete integration, because sometimes uh, the the trade-off in absolute integration is not worth it when actually what you need to be able to do is to interface and connect where it doesn't necessarily mean full integration, but we're only doing that through um, through experimentation and, and working together on that. Um, very keen to hear what uh, others have to say on that. Given that my job title is the Joint Force Integrator for Autonomous Systems, I suppose it's an opportune moment for me to chime in. And um, Emily raised a really good point about about how how much integration do you need? What's the what's the right level? What's the minimum viable both autonomy and and integration or interfacing between systems? And what we done over 2023, we've developed uh, C4ISR design guidance for uncrewed systems. That's helping us understand what the what the interfaces and and uh, integration needs to be. 
we'll refine that through experimentation over the next uh, couple of years, but also we know we need to connect it to our allies' common control systems, and that's a body of work that we're undertaking, uh, really focused on the on the US Navy as as the ADF's uh, sort of focus for um, interoperability, given the, the high numbers of um, common platforms, but also uh, we get some advantages in our, uh, because of the overlap between Marine Corps, US Navy, we, that brings the Army in as well. So um, that that's their bodies of work to, that are underway, uh, but we know we need to continue um, to, to, to find what what the right right levels of interfacing and integration are. And I could probably, uh, I guess, uh, follow on one of the sort of focus on uh, from the current sort of air approach, I guess, four sort of, I guess, pillars of, of that integration. And that's a common air vehicle architecture, common communication links, uh, a common autonomy architecture, and a common C2 standards. And, and as uh, James and Emily said, that doesn't mean the same because once we understand what the operational concept is, when you talk about integration, it might be, I just need to be able to send a chat message from one vehicle to the other. That might be success versus it might be, I know you are, are fully you know, effectively autonomously operating together as a team where you're sharing everything, collaborating and making common decisions as a team of uncrewed systems. And so I think that's you know, we're looking at what we can do and where possible we want to be as common, but we need to understand that all being different does bring an asymmetric advantage and so therefore just being the same is not the right answer i, I think that's uh, really the idea of you know looking at heterogeneous you know federated sort of systems of systems where they're coming with different autonomy packages different necessary you know c2 arrangements as long as they're able to as emily said you know interface uh you can have that federated architecture be able to be successful and obviously it gives you more flexibility in terms of how they can get deployed um you know, Adam, I think in the naval context, that's probably really important because you're probably going to have quite a collection of, you know, different vehicles operating in essentially every domain under, on, and above the water. You know, are you are you finding that you have to do a lot of strapping together of these systems to achieve any sort of, you know, kind of federated uh, C3 architecture? Look, absolutely, Brian, and and, um, and that the interfacing, not necessarily integrating, is a key point for me. Um, we're establishing a prototype uncrewed operations center for air surface and subsurface uh, robots. And uh, when my traditional Navy counterparts look at what we're trying to do, they will automatically go to integrating and and uh, throw, a, throw up a lot of roadblocks as to why this might take us five or 10 years to achieve an outcome. And then, you know, when I sort of maybe say, if my blue bottle with a tow array detects uh, a contact, um, I don't need that to automatically go into the common operating picture. Uh, that that could be a real time chat or an email or a phone call saying this this contact call speed um, uh, back into the the operational decision makers to see if we might need to do something about that. So it it feels like we're kind of going back to maybe where we were. Uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, where a lot of our systems were not integrated particularly well and we're having to do things via um, voice reports. And I think that we're probably starting out with some of that type of thinking as to that's probably good enough to, to achieve an effect. I'm sure if it was fully integrated, 
it would be easier and that would be terrific, but we're not going to achieve that at the start. So uh, for me, it's about uh, developing platforms that are robust and reliable and I can get repeatable um, process, uh, uh, outcomes from them and have some confidence in what they can do so our regulators are happy um, that, that we know what we're doing and uh, when I send a robot out, I, you know, I know it's going to love me enough to come back. And um, uh, I think we will eventually get to a point down track of nicely integrated systems, but in the meantime, we probably don't need them to be integrated. Just that level of understanding of um, uh, uh, TTPs um, and, and how we're going to use these uh, um, various robots uh, together as a package, as a system of systems, is probably our challenge. And that does get to um, understanding through operational exercise uh, experimentation is as we set a goal for a particular robot to do something and it achieves you know, X uh, and, and maybe a, a degree less than what we wanted it to, it doesn't mean it's a failure. It actually just means we changed the way uh, we maybe employ that, that asset and understand the risks around it and understand um, uh, how we manage those risks and how we operate uh, the capability of what it can do. Uh, yeah, so you brought up a couple of good points there. So one thing Dan and I have run into when we talk to U.S. military leaders is they say they want a you know 70% solution, an 80% solution, but they can't really define what it is the 20% that they're willing to lose. Uh, and in a lot of cases, it turns out it's really about integration. You know, I would accept you know, they would accept a, a 20%, 30% less integrated solution if they could have it now. Um, and I think that's a good way of framing it. I don't know if that's something that has been actively used there, but that's, that'd be a good lesson for the US. I don't know, if, James, is that something you guys have approached with, you know, is what's an acceptable level of integration? And then in terms of just lethality or effectiveness, are you willing to accept a lower level of effectiveness on the unmanned systems part because you're getting all these other benefits from its use? Absolutely. Um, you know, you 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 might be you're you're probably aware of how things like integrated air and missile uh, defence works. It works as much by um, uh, deterring or denying, because we don't like putting crew aircraft in in harm's way. And you know, four percent attrition rate on a hundred aircraft over thirty missions um, pretty quickly wears wears them down. Um, so. Uh, you know, our sort of start point is okay. Um, let's let's start with an idea that fifty percent attrition is acceptable um, for uncrewed systems in a in a strike mission. Okay, given given that, how does that change what compromises you're willing to make? You're only going to get half of them half of them back. How much do you really want to spend on um, you know uh, either you know, guidance systems or collaborative systems or whatever they whatever they happen to be, um, maybe, maybe you just increase the numbers. And this is a really fat. This is the absolute criticality of modelling, simulation, and, and war games. And, and I know you're you're leading out on some of those war games to understand where are the the payoff points. You know, if I get what what's better, is it you know a thousand at a thousand dollars. Each or is it five hundred at twenty thousand dollars each? So what 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 are the what are the, the, the trade offs? So our modelling and simulation needs are evolving beyond simply the operational application. Then there's a nearly a third dimension of modelling and simulation, 
which is then the industry cost side of it. And the cost is one part of it. Availability is the other advantage of a system that I can, that the brain can be, you know, um, the recycled iPhone 12, you know, uh, systems on. Because when we think about generating these capabilities at scale, like Emily said right at the start, we have to think more broadly than just the defence sector. How do we bring in other other industries? So um, pro probably the key, key points there are you whole range of trade-offs, everything from integration to system performance to numbers to how pretty it looks, um, and the importance of modelling and simulation to help us make decisions across the full spectrum of that. James, that's a great point. Yeah, there's that there's the trade space of you know how much time and money do you want to spend on building the systems, integrating them, creating that end-to-end -end, you know kill chain, um, you know based on what your metrics are that you're trying to achieve. So so Emily, is this is you 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 came out of the DSTG, you came out of the the research and, and development world. Um, how well is Australia or the ADF positioned to be able to do that level of uh, analysis to assess that trade space and figure out, you know, essentially what's good enough or figure out, you know, what the leverage points are? And is this an area where you can tap into industry or the commercial industry even? Uh, great questions there, Brian. And um, it is actually something where we're already starting to do that. So first of all, uh, Defence Science and Technology Group have a real rich history in this area and have been ramping up our capability. It's a real focus. Um, we're just in the process of uh, refreshing the Defence Innovation Science and Technology Strategy. So this is not a DSTG strategy, it's a whole of defence strategy. And it won't surprise anyone here that that focus on modelling and simulation, guiding experimentation is at the core of that strategy because it is critical to our ability to accelerate um, capability development in the right directions. And you'll see that um, reflected in, in the workforce, which uh, work very, very closely um, and in some cases embedded with, that, with our military partners. But one thing we have been doing is looking at what we can do um, and what industry can do. And uh, in the previous strategy that was launched in 2020, more together, that was the focus. You now we have um, around 2,200 people in DSTG but that's only a small fraction of what we need. So what do we get from industry? What do we get from our academic partners and how do we work together? Uh, one example is that we've established um, a senior community here in operational research where it's great to see in those meetings, conversations about what DSTG can do well, but then what our industry partners are much better suited at. And I know James was in one of those meetings where we had um, different industry partners actually talking about what their individual strengths were and saying to others, well, we're good at this and you're good at that. So why don't we focus our efforts in that way, which I think is um, it's really important for us as, a, as um, a smaller nation, but also in terms of how we work with our allies, because a number of those companies, of course, are across um, our um, allied partners. So this is going to be really important. It's going to allow us to, to do things quickly at scale. And I think um, the other thing too is that, you know, it's a, it's actually quite difficult to work out what the minimum viable capability you need is. And until, unless you can really get um, get stuck into to actually guiding it with some, well, we think this is what it is, let's go and test it. You'll just sit there forever discussing what the possibilities are. 
Um, I wanted to want to add one more comment too when we were talking about um, the the uh, integration piece, and that is um, when we're talking about AI-driven systems, um, they're quite predictable, which is one of the challenges. So actually having some um, homogeneity in our systems and what we do helps us reduce that predictability in terms of their operations. And I think that is quite important in terms of the um, the vulnerability of these systems as well. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, a part of the idea is to get a decision-making advantage. You need to drive some uncertainty on the part of your opponent. Um, otherwise, they're going to eventually figure out a way to defeat you, which the Chinese have a very good way of doing. So you know, one, one uh, other point on that. So it seems like what you're saying too is that with modeling simulation being used effectively, we can sort of scope and bound the experimentation effort to be you know more you know focused more effective less time consuming because i think otherwise you could get into a lot of uh, do loops with regard to experimentation that can be very expensive and time consuming is that what you're getting at yeah look it's um the the financial cost is is one thing it's a pressure in all of our countries but but james alluded to it we have you know we have to understand what the achievability is in terms of what our industry can support and then it's the the human cost um all of us are stretched for resources and the the more that we can use those as effectively as possible um the better which is where modeling and simulation allows us to get much further and we've, we've seen that in exercises um in the last six months where that um even some real quick and dirty <laughs> uh, modeling work has has um completely changed the the outcome of the exercise but let me ask a related question about how how you think about uh, balancing innovation and practicality here. Uh, you know, on the U.S. side, um, there, there's a number of constraints that make this difficult. You know, one of the, the the budget side is perhaps most obvious. We talk about you know divest to invest, but that just to be clear, that means you're getting rid of something that is battle proven that you know works, that you have a trained force that knows how to how to use to invest in something that you're just hoping is, is going to work. Or if you look at it from, you know, the industry side, uh, you'll, you'll find, you know, really enthusiastic companies, but they want commitment, right? They want funding. And on the governmental side, you can't get that funding without evidence. Uh, and of course, building that evidence is, is really quite hard. Uh, and maybe some of this gets at what you meant by minimum viable product. Uh, but how do you think about you know balancing this these these constraints between innovation and practicality? You can't give up, uh, you know, being able to deliver an effective defense uh, tomorrow to you know to to get the new technology next week. Yeah, I'll look, start with you, Emily. Yeah, look, it's it's um that's the million dollar question or perhaps a billion dollar question we're talking in defense, but um it's it's an enduring challenge for us because you need a balanced portfolio in terms of the risk that you take. Um, and I think that is something that all of us are challenged with, not just in Australia. How much risk, where do we take that risk? Um, I would argue that we've come to a point where we don't have a choice and that we we need, we understand that that um, the, um, the tried and true approach is, is putting all our eggs in one basket as well but you can't go too far the other way. In terms of innovation and practicality, I think this is probably one of the, the real misunderstandings with innovation because innovation is invention that is useful. So effective innovation is practical. But I think we put a lot of things in the innovation basket 
that are not focused on practicality as they should be. They're about generating new ideas. You know, I'm I'm a researcher at heart. You know, generating new ideas is extremely important. But the way we've set up ASCA really excites me because we don't start an ASCA mission unless we have the transition pathway identified. We don't go after an innovation challenge unless that problem has come from the end user and is um, approved by the Vice Chief of the Defence Force. So we're saying there's a lot of things we could get after. They're interesting, they're exciting, but actually we're only going to get after the things that are solving a pressing defence need that we, we don't have an identified solution to. Now, that still requires us to take the risk and say we're going to go after something we haven't done before, but we're doing that because we don't have a known solution to it right now. And I think that... Um, that sharper focus that we brought to our innovation activities, whilst very challenging for industry who want to tell us all their good ideas all the time, gives us a better chance of um, success. And it's where we're getting after the stuff that we know are the truly wicked problems that we don't have an easy solution to already. Yeah, that's a great perspective. I like the point of an operational problem. James, I, I know you have to run. Uh, do you have, have any thoughts on, on, on this challenge? What, what I would say is if we were having this conversation Two years ago, it was a more difficult conversation because there was less uh, senior leaders and government figures who were aware of the opportunities of autonomy and the um, you know uh, conflicts in the Ukraine and in the Middle East uh, daily, vivid, um, unmissable evidence of the use and uh, development of these types of, of systems and to for the ADF to not pursue these would it, it, it is you know two years ago might have been a choice now that would just be negligence um, so I think we're in a better place in terms of making those arguments Hey, James, before you have to go, one thing I wanted to ask about is Emily brought up the idea of uh, defining problems. Yeah, how are we how are we defining operational problems uh, in the ADF that we're going to go after, you know, with a dedicated sort of, you know, initiative to go build an unmanned system of systems? Um, there's, uh, as I said to you just before we got on here, I was in Washington last week with uh, talking about AUKUS autonomy experimentation, that the 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 AUKUS approach is remarkably similar. We take our uh, capstone concepts in the US case, uh, the uh, joint wolf flooding uh, concept 3.0 and, and in our case, concept Aspire, and we break them down to, um, to uh, what we think are the key operational problems and then we apply systems engineering approach to understand what you need to do to solve that that problem and then and then then that, that drives system of systems is uh, in our in, in my case often uncrewed but there are a whole other component parts you need still need people at nodes etc to, to make all that work so it's probably no different to any other capability development process we just come at it with a with a different you know set of capabilities and start state assumptions right that makes sense uh thanks a lot uh james i know you have to uh go but um we're gonna i, I have a, one thanks, more question Ron. to uh raise with um 
uh, Adam and Ross, which is the, the the specific systems that you're you're employing to, to address some of these operational problems. I mean, you're facing you know problems that extend over very long distances, you know, with with the need for pretty significant persistence. Um, you know, are you uh, basically finding what you you know useful systems coming from uh, industry? Are you having to you know partner with uh, you know US DoD, for example, to bring some of their militarily you know uh, those dedicated military systems you know over to Australia? Uh, is it a mix? You know, what are you what are you looking at in terms of the portfolio that is able to deliver on solutions to these operational problems? And, and I, I think yeah, I guess the uh, the quick answer is it is a mix. Uh, we are taking those things that come from industry. Uh, there are things that are being developed internally within defence in collaboration with industry, some internally in defence and partnerships with the US and our other co other coalition partners. So it is very much that hybrid approach. Uh, from an Air Force perspective, in March last year, uh, we signed a collaborative combat aircraft budget arrangement with the US. So that, that's part of that collaboration. Um, uh, we have the US out here frequently with us as well. I think that was raised earlier on is we are all learning at the moment. I'm not, no, no one has the answer. We're all working, collaborating, and it's really you know, learning by doing. And that's um, coming back to the modeling and simulation uh, with our MQ-28 Ghostbat. We have a digital twin of the system. And so uh, when we go flying, all we're doing is really validating that the digital model and modeling simulation that we have conducted is valid. So we're not going out there doing hours and hours. You know, in the future of the 60s, where we do hundreds of hours of test flying, now, we, ideally, we do thousands of hours of modeling and simulation in digital world, and then we go out and do one flight and go, yes, that works. That, that validates a model, and that allows us to iterate quickly and come back to the problem is to go, actually, we've identified a novel or innovative solution now because we can experiment and run hundreds of thousands, millions of scenarios in the modeling and simulation world, and then apply that in the real world and say, actually, that that's we never thought of that, but that's actually the best solution. And so I think... Now, we are really opening the aperture to exploring all options. And the challenge is really picking up which ones do you support and take through to realize the capability. That's, I think, the hardest part because there are so many options available. Yeah, and there are a lot of options available. I look at the work that Navy's been doing. In fact, it's been over a few years now. And some of it has actually grown up through the Defence Innovation Hub where we've been investing in good ideas from Australian sovereign industry uh, partners. Uh, one of those is the Blue Bottle Uncrewed Surface Vessel. It's about a 22-foot yacht with solar and wave power. And, and we've had this thing at sea for in, in excess of 50 days doing ISR-type missions. And we start looking at some of the other um, payloads that we could put onto that platform because the platform is probably the easy bit. It's actually the, um, the payloads you put on there to, to do the ISR, whether it be um, surface or subsurface, which is, I think, really, for me, the really interesting stuff. <laughs> Um, our Ghost Shark Extra Large Autonomous Underwater Vehicle has um, been a great partnership with DSTG and um, and Andrew Australia and Navy over the past 18 months, and that's achieving some really terrific goals. And I'm sure Emily will talk to that a bit more in a moment. That's been very much a part of her recent focus. And uh, coupled with that, the, the Speartooth Large Uncrewed Underwater Vehicle, uh, another great sovereign uh, SME that um, that actually came to Navy with it with a good idea about um, two and a half years ago and said we think we can do this and um, it was an interesting decision as to why you might invest in a company like that because they didn't have any pedigree in, in marine boat building 
that but they did have a, a great pedigree in um, taking great ideas and implementing them at speed. And so we backed that company and they've been incredible as well with the, the, the results they've achieved in, uh, in less than two years. So um, it, it really is about partnering with industry, but I think also partnering with the, the US Department of Defense. There's a lot of uh, discussion going on in the background um, under the AUKUS covers the pillar two as to how might we co-develop um, sensors and payloads for, for platforms like this? And um, for me, that that's where some of the expertise and I guess the the sheer mass of the US system can help accelerate some of those very complex uh, pieces. And we've talked about the interfacing integration piece earlier. Uh, uh, some of those advanced payloads are very complex, so um, probably leaning towards integration. However, um, uh, le leveraging the expertise of the United States in that space will, will probably help us jointly achieve those outcomes uh, more quickly. Um, Emily, you might want to comment more on that. Yeah, look, um, that's yeah. for me is the is the real strength of AUKUS, in particularly the advanced capabilities. It's allowing us to start thinking about things differently. And um, just to say, out of the um, the defence ministers meeting in um, in December, we saw the announcement of the first AUKUS Innovation Challenge. So that will be um, executed by ASCA in Australia, the Defence Innovation Unit in the US and uh, the Defence and Security Accelerator in the UK. Focus on um, electronic warfare, you see a challenge statement coming out soon, but that's something where we're starting to look at how we can um, we can work together to accelerate areas when one where we've immediately recognised it's um, of, of priority for, for all three nations. Um, and as Adam said, things like the, the work with Ghost Shark and Speartooth have been fabulous examples of how we've worked differently with industry in that we set these up as collaborative projects. Uh, if you go to the C2 Robotics, they'll tell you that the greatest benefit has been having um, Navy officers there working with them, um, understanding what they're doing, helping to direct what they're doing. They're working with um, Defence Science and Technology Group on some of the technical aspects that they need to support that. GoShark takes that to another level. That's a that is set up as a collaborative um, co-development program where, from the start, we had experts from DSTG who were experts in submarine design, helping to design the shape of the boat. And I think this is probably the first UV that's been designed by submarine designers, which um gives it some real opportunities in terms of its capability, and including things like um signature and and um manoeuvrability and some of the uh, the other aspects there but but extremely important but just shows where we where we can use that that expertise to to drive um things a lot faster we've got the incredible um expertise that comes from andrew and what they've been able to develop in their supply chain in australia but bringing that um defense perspective as well as the the navy operators in there right from the start has um, allowed us to really accelerate that program it seems like um these commercial providers you know like c2 robotics like andrew um, also have this ability to maybe field at scale, which has been a challenge, you know, in, in the U.S. in particular is, okay, great, we've got an idea, we've got a system of systems we want to pursue. Can we field this thing at a relevant scale? And then, then you find the supply chain has got lots of flaws or, you know, you don't have a, a path to manufacturing at scale. We've seen that with some UUV programs and USV programs here. Um, so do you see the, the, the Australian providers as being an avenue to do that, plus you can tap into this whole industrial base that the US and UK have? 
Look, I would um I would say that the challenges are there, but we're identifying them early. So starting um at the innovation end while thinking about that at the same time allows us to understand what that supply chain needs to look like. So if I use the the Go Shark example, Andrew has spent a lot of time developing a network of I think over 50 Australian suppliers in their supply chain. But what they're also understanding is what does it need for these businesses to be viable? And that does have to come into the calculation of what minimum viable manufacturing means. Um, this is something that we've learned the hard way, as has the US, that it's uh, you can't just go from a cold start and start doing this. And, and I know that we've had that challenge in other programs. Um, but here we've got the advantage of saying, well, we know that. And if we want to be able to manufacture even at um, limited rate production, um, you know, relatively near in the future, then there is a whole range of things we need to do. And it's not just those long lead time components about what it is for that business to be viable, to be able to supply. This is part of, um, in my view, what you need to understand about your industrial supply chain, but it's also one of the benefits of AUKUS if you then start thinking about how we can better connect our industrial base to provide that resilience across um, the multiple nations. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it seems like there's opportunities there to both have resilience and capacity. Um, and uh, so I think that's probably, we've probably run out of time, let everybody uh, get on with their schedules. But, um, but thank you very much for uh, your time today. We appreciate the opportunity to talk about AUKUS Pillar 2 unmanned systems and, and where Australia and the ADF is going with this. Um, you know, as we close, um, I just wanted to give you all a couple minutes if you wanted to maybe bring up something that I forgot in the course of the questioning here that, uh, that Dan and I forgot. Um, and uh, we'll start with uh, Ross. Is there anything else we wanted to address here today? Um, no, I think following up from Emily's comments there, no, uh, a lot of this is about achievability is there's no use going through and having a great prototype. And then when you go to, <laughs> okay, I want a thousand of those, then you go, sorry, that'll take us right. 10 years. And right. now we are similar from the air perspective, really focusing on you know, how do you produce this thing? What are all the components? And again, with MQ28, you know, there's uh, over 200 Australian industry players that are part of that. So it's it's really going through all the way through that value chain, understanding it and understanding the global supply chain to work out well, where are the bottlenecks and have we over-specified something? And that's really, again, it's, it's on us to make sure that we um, you know, control the excitement of people to get the exquisite. And you know, quite often, simple is much better, but having that producibility, manufacturability, you know, the ability to go to any general engineering workshop and go, I want you to produce this tomorrow. Okay, right, I'll stop producing car parts, I'll now produce your aircraft part for you. And that's a bit of a change in mindset, particularly in the aviation industry where we are, from a crude platform, and I think that's playing out at the moment with Boeing, as to you know, when you have people in the air and their lives are at stake, you have standards and uh, processes in place which are there for very good reasons. When you remove the humans from the air vehicle, you have a different risk profile. Right. So what is the standard we need to apply to design the aircraft? And that is a challenge we're having with especially the aviation industry where they're applying crude aircraft design standards to an uncrewed system mm -hmm. And we're going, we've well, over-engineered it. That's a waste. I don't need that. And that is, um, as we go through this and try and understand what is good enough, that's part of the challenge of working through, right. particularly in the airspace. Thanks. Yeah, that's and that's great. our trade space. Yep. Yep. Uh, Adam. Uh, th thanks, Brian. Look, I'd say it's actually a lot about leadership and leadership at all levels. So leadership at our working level to 
uh, look at the concepts and the technology and actually drive some outcomes and demonstrate results through our operational experimentation exercises. That in turn, I think, drives belief that what we're doing is actually working and it, and it could solve operational problems. And that in turn drives uh, the funding taps to be turned on uh, to, to transition from innovation into, you know, into low rate production or production at scale. And uh, I, I think the challenge that we all face collectively is there is never enough money to do what we would like to do. Um, and so trying to look at those trade-offs and think, well, how much is enough funding to get to that minimum viable capability? Because if you if it's just a trickle feed of funding, you remain in an innovation sort of setting where you can probably keep prototyping, but you're not actually producing any, any scaled mass that will be effective to turn the dial on deterrence or actually uh, combat effects. Yeah, well said. Uh, and uh, Emily? Yeah, look, um, I... I want to come back to something that we only touched on briefly, and that is risk and risk appetite. And I think um, that I agree with James that um, we're a long way from where we were two years ago. But when I look at the potential of um, uncrewed systems and where we are now, I think part of the challenge will remain um, how we embrace that risk, how we calculate that risk, and how we make those decisions. Um, we can have forcing functions like uh, what is happening in uh, Ukraine in the Middle East right now, and we prefer to do it without such um, such challenging forcing functions. But I think um, there probably is uh, a moment in time here. It's it's fabulous seeing the momentum uh, in the US system with things like Replicator. I think we're starting to see some of that momentum here in Australia and um, also in um, in the UK and other and other partners. So I think that this is. Uh, it really is about embracing that risk in a calculated way at the right moment in time, because I think the um, the benefit, the potential benefits, um, are not being questioned. It's just how how we get after it, and um, it's good to see Adam and, and Ross touch on some of the the challenges we have in doing that. Yeah, thank you, Emily. I mean, definitely, that's where you know, we have to start is sort of the the risk assessment and and making that trade space analysis of you know where do we get value out of the unmanned systems and what's good enough to address the operational problems we face. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, everybody, for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, we really appreciate it that the insight here and and the discussion with really uh, with Australian leaders about uh, Australia's uh, efforts on AUKUS Pillar Two uh, and unmanned systems. Um, thank you to James uh, Davis who uh, had to leave uh, to go. Uh, do meetings associated with unmanned systems. So we appreciate his time. Uh, uh, Air Commodore Ross Bender, uh, Captain Adam Alicia, Professor Emily Hilder, thank you all for being here today. Also, thank you to uh, Dr. Dan Pat. Um, and thank you to Morgan DeWitt for producing this, uh, this event. So thank you all and uh, have a great day from the Hudson Institute.